This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. Under the Yellow Tape podcast is brought to you in part this week by Highlands Forensic Investigations and Consulting. Let us be your guide from crime scene to courtroom. Also brought to you by CRG Plans. CRG, Critical Response Group, making our world safer each day. If you're a parent with school-aged children from kindergarten to university, take a look at CRG Plans and see how they're making the world safer for you, your family, your children, in your community. That's crgplans.com. Now let's get to it. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. We left off on the last episode talking with Jerry Lewis about interview and interrogation. I hope that some of you found it pretty interesting, some maybe even fascinating how uh, experts can sit and talk to somebody and kind of use their words and to determine between truth and deception. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about statement analysis. Um, it's another interesting concept. It's something I find pretty amazing. Um, and it is a technique for analyzing the words people use to, to try to determine if what they're saying is accurate. So, a lot of uh, some of the terms they, they use is scientific content analysis or SCAN. Um, there's a couple different terms here. We're going to go through it. We're going to have Jerry explain it to us about statement validity and the words they use and how they use them and sometimes what they know, conscious and unconscious use of terms and phrases. Uh, Jerry, thanks for being back. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Why don't you take a, let everybody, take everybody on a, a little bit of a tutorial of statement analysis as as opposed to interview and interrogation. Okay. Obviously, we don't have a lot of time uh, to learn the rules of statement analysis before we kind of analyze some things here. So I understand that. I want to give everybody a little bit of confidence that it's a very valid technique that you can rely on. And, um, you know, my training in it, he, how he mentioned the scan technique, it's Avanom Sapir, scientific content analysis. I've recommended hundreds and hundreds of people to go through that. I actually went through a class with him for a week in New York. It wasn't, it was before he even um, termed it scan. It was productive interrogation. And my training in it, from what I remember, I already had two years in the polygraph unit doing interviews two to three every day. 
trying to figure people out. But I knew I was really lacking in my ability to differentiate between it. I was looking for other things I could use. I had no idea what this course was going to be. It didn't say anything about analyzing statements. And uh, I just, whatever I could learn, you know, I was going to try to learn. So I went to that school and um, it's a little different than what you go through now. We um, didn't get any rules of statement analysis, I believe, until Thursday morning. I mean, we read a lot. We had to go home and read things. And he said, read this book tonight and come back with a one word confession. And uh, I was one of the first people, I think, trained 1983 in this. And 700 people in the world had gone through it. And only a few people had ever gotten this word. But we didn't even know what we were looking for. What What do you mean? And um, so it was very confusing, but interesting. And the first day he had us each write down a story, totally true or totally false. And a couple of days in, he had everybody read their stories. Uh, so the first woman wrote a story uh, that she got a, a line in the Broadway play, Annie. And she said her friend worked on the play and uh, she went out to lunch with her and she said, wouldn't it be funny if Annie said this? And the woman went back and talked to the director and they put that line in the play and that's her line. So all of the experienced police officers in the class voted truthful. And Avanom immediately said, I think you're not being truthful. She goes, no, I made it up. I'm like, Wow. Then they had a uh, police officer from, uh, when he was in the service, he said he saw a UFO in Texas and he's never mentioned it to too many people because you'd, they'd make fun of him and they wouldn't believe him. But since we have now have an instructor who knows when you're being truthful, I'm writing this story that I saw a UFO. So all of us experienced the uh, cops in the class, truthful. Avanam says, I think you're lying. He was lying. He made it all up. I'm like, oh my God, I know nothing. So. He got to me and it was pretty, I felt bad because all I wrote was what I did the day before. I didn't try to fool him with some big outlandish story, but my story had a lot of elements to it that I played racquetball against my twin brother. It was really the first time I ever beat him and I was happy about it. I had emotions in there and I had no clue that I wrote that stuff that meant anything, right? But it wasn't as good a story as everyone else. Well, the person next to me, he starts reading his story and he goes, me and my girlfriend got up, we went shopping. I told her I was sick and Avanam stopped him right there. He said, you told her you were sick. You were not sick. And the guy's just looking at him. He goes, what'd you do then? He goes, oh, I took her home and went and called another girl. We're all like, oh my God, what? <laughs> he goes, you told her you were, you would have said I was sick. You wrote, I told her I was sick. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a lot here to learn. He was simply amazing. And, uh, I knew that he knew this and that he was amazing. I knew I was pretty confused. Thursday morning, he gave us some rules. And uh, Thursday afternoon, we, he called someone from the building in to tell a story from her childhood. We wrote it down and we analyzed it. And Friday, we really did something else. So just to try to give you a little confidence, my training in this um, was not what you would get now if you went to scan. It's, it's much better. Uh, but it was still great. And from the first day, I told you about Jeffrey McDonald in the last uh, podcast we did where he said, you know, did you kill your wife? He goes, I love my wife. I'm like, boy, he didn't deny it. He had a chance to deny it and he didn't do it. So from that day on, I started asking a person, do the background form. And my first question about the case was tell me everything he did that day. 
And then I would write down every word they said. And what that does is it forces you to pay attention to every word they say. Because if you just tape it and you go back and listen to it, you're not really paying enough attention to it. But by writing it, it slows it down and it takes time. And one of your advantages in an interview to get a confession is spending time with someone. So this is a technique where I just say, I want you to tell me everything you did the day that this happened from the time you woke up till the time you went to bed. Now, I can't write that fast, so you have to go slow. And even if they think what you're asking them is a little strange, they say, what am I supposed to do? You repeat the same direction. So then they'll start off. Well, I got up and I look at them. I write, I got up, and then I look at him. Then he says, I went downstairs, I write that. He knows how fast I can write. He knows that's what I wanted. It's no longer weird or strange, right? So I go through the entire uh, day until he says something like, you know, that's it. Now, if you get to the time of where the crime occurred and he starts speaking real fast, that might be a clue. He doesn't really, he wants to get through that part. And he starts talking really fast. The whole time he's been waiting for you. And all of a sudden he's talking so fast you can't write it in. Like, whoa, whoa, wait. Well, it might be a little sign that he's rushing through that part. But you know how you see on Facebook, people put these paragraphs out. Can you read this? Right? You can always read it. And the words are messed up. The letters are out of order. But you can read it almost as well as you could if it was written properly or spelled properly. The mind is a fantastic thing, but if your mind was your cell phone, I would say, turn that app off. We're not going to look at something. We're not going to surmise something. We're not going to try to just peruse something. We're going to listen to every word a person says, right? So you're going to go back and you're going to look at the words, a, every word a person says about what they did the day of the crime. If, if I had a case where, you know, the person they don't know when the crime happened or it happened over a longer span of time, I would ask a person to, to tell me something. I might say, you know, tell me everything you know or you've heard about this case. I want to get something to hear, you know, the words they're going to use to describe what they know about the case or whatever. Sometimes it's, it's really not convenient if, if it's been too long and they can't remember what they did or something. But most of the time I was able to get a pretty good statement. So that's how you would start off. Uh, it slows your interview down. It gives you time and you're anticipating what the next words are going to be. And if they come out with a different word than what you thought they were going to say, you put a little dash in the margin. So you're going to come back to that. You don't interrupt anybody when they're talking, let them tell you the whole story. But now you noted that was kind of strange or weird, maybe. And you're going to go back and ask about that. Right? So you just go back to the sentence they said before that and repeat that. Uh, you went downstairs and you look at him and you wait to hear that sentence again. And maybe that, maybe it comes out better this time, or maybe it's still weird. And you might've identified a sensitive area in their statement. And that's what you're looking for. And some of the rules that I go over with you to me, my understanding is these are rules of how memory works. And when you're recalling an event truthfully from your memory, it's probably going to follow the patterns of these rules, you know, that I can give you. So. Uh, you know, one thing is one of the main things they have you initially go through a person's statement and you circle all the pronouns and you see where did the person take responsibility by using the letter I. One of the things that you'll find yourself doing, even as I'm talking to you, maybe about some of these examples, you're going to try to defend 
the person, what they wrote. And you're going to think I'm being too picky. And how can you predict that somebody's going to use a pronoun? What you see on, on text now and Facebook, no one uses their pronouns. It's just all initials and they just put stuff out there. What you have to do is just try it. And you'll see that when people are telling the truth, they put their pronoun in the sentence. And when they're not telling the truth, often, sometimes, you know, they'll leave it out. Um, so you're going to look at the pronouns that's going to give you an indicator on that sentence that they may be truthful. And, um, you're going to look for emotions. Now, when people go through things, they feel emotions. They don't always put them in their statement. It doesn't mean that they're not being truthful if they don't put an emotion in a statement, but if they do, and that emotion corresponds to what it should be, you know, you're going to give them credit that as they're pulling the information out of their brain, truthfully, these things are attached to it. You know, so we're going to look at um, emotions. And, uh, you know, as we go along, what I want to say to you, because my training wasn't as great as it could be now, if you go through the school, it's really a matter of listen to every word a person says. And what do you think of it, how they said it? And one of the things you can kind of guide by is how would you say something if you were telling the truth? That's how most people do. And even though I never specialized in any kind of crime, any type of uh, individual, I didn't even know what the case was until I showed up, you know, so you could be doing one day uh, theft with, you know, three people. You could do another day, a child molestation case. Another day might be a sexual assault. And we did people from 14 years old on up. So I'm not referring to people under 14. I'm not referring to five and six-year-old kids, how they talk or how they would tell you the story. I have no opinions of that. But from my experience, uh, from 14 up, these are pretty um, valid rules. So people that are telling the truth are going to have possessiveness. So a person parks their car. They're going to say, I parked my car at 11 o'clock. I came back and my car was gone. My car was stolen, right? They have possessiveness of their car. The person that's, that had their car stolen for the insurance money or they wrecked it and said it was stolen, they may say, I parked my car at 11 o'clock. I came back at, at uh, an hour later and the car was gone. They separate themselves from ownership of the car because that's going to get him in trouble after the fact. Person says, I left my house at 11 o'clock and I came back and the house is on fire. Man, if you came back and your house is on fire, my house is on fire. That's what you're going to be saying. But the person that started the fire, if it's their house, may um, keep the possessiveness away and come back and say, the house is on fire. So you may see examples of where people take the possessiveness away from um ownership of the of the case where no reason to right so we'll come up with other examples as we go through things that i'll just throw out to you because we can't go over all the rules in the amount of time we have yeah well i think it's i mean i've i've watched you do this before i've i've been fortunate enough to watch you do it you know real time in real life on real cases and it's pretty it's pretty amazing and i think it's uh something that we can share with them that's they're going to be like I, one of the cool things I think about this is, like you said, you can you can listen to your family having conversations with your family, watch TV. I find myself watching if I watch the news, which is a painful ordeal these days. But you watch like uh, 
any of the news people, especially when they're it's a mostly opinion based, you can see where they're going and where they're they they fly off in one direction or the other. But when you when you get to some of these political spokespeople, they don't answer anything. No, I mean they like. It's almost like they're, they're, there's a training course, <laughs> just deflection and deceit. And you say to yourself, oh my God, she didn't answer a thing. And you know, it, it's kind of like when you're a cop and all the cops out there that can, can relate to this. When you watch some show on TV, that's about what you do for a living and your family is there and they're all enamored by it and something happens and you go, well, that doesn't happen and this doesn't happen. And they're like, you know what? I don't want to watch any of this with you. Well, it got to the point now where I don't think anybody wants to watch the political reports in front of us. Cause you sit there and you go, well, that's, they didn't answer that question or they didn't do this, or they just deflected onto something else. One of my favorite things is when they, they get a direct question about a topic and they say, well, I think another question is, and then they do, <laughs> wait a minute, you're going to ask a question and now answer it yourself. They just kind of, they go off in a different direction. Um, I think it's very interesting that there's other countries, Netherlands, Germany, and Sweden use these techniques, these, these different types of statement analysis techniques as scientific evidence in court. Other countries like the United States, Canada, and the UK do not consider them as legally valid evidence in court, which is amazing to me because I think there's enough empirical data on this to say, look, there's so much validity here. A lot of it has to do with the skill of the interpreter or the, or the person doing the analysis. And that's where the qualifications come into play. Not anybody can do this. Everybody can start to see some of the things you're going to talk about today. But even as, man, as many times as you and I have spoke, I'll read a statement and I go, I got to call Jerry because <laughs> I just don't see it. You see it. And then you call me back and say, well, what about this? So I think a lot of it really has to do with the practitioner. Um, but I like the fact that some states are using it. So this, this episode, what we want to really focus on is just a few things here, but mainly OJ Simpson, right? The famous murder back in the nineties of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. It was a case that captivated the world. Okay. Hall of Fame football player, superstar actor, you name it, uh, charged with a violent murder and the subsequent not guilty verdict. But as time has gone by, there have been statements made by OJ, statements written by OJ, interviews that he gave later on before his you know, eventual incarceration for something else that have been looked at, broken down, analyzed, and are a little bit mind-blowing. So I think what we'll do, uh, Jerry, what do you think? I'll read. Mm -hmm. I'll read a, a letter. So OJ, I think it was before, right? Before he got arrested? Yeah, they, he was waiting at home. They were coming to arrest him and he left this letter. So he leaves his handwritten penned letter on, uh, on paper. So I'm going to read it to you and then I'm going to let, you know, have Jerry comment on it. So it says, to whom it may concern. First, everyone understand. And then there's a scribble. Nothing to do with Nicole's murder. Now under the scribble, were the words I had. They, they've been scratched out by, presumably by him. So it says, first, everyone understand the original writing is I had nothing to do with Nicole's murder. And then he crosses out I had. I loved her, always have, and always will. If we had a problem, it's because I loved her so much. 
recently we came to the understanding that for now we weren't right for each other, at least for now. Despite our love, we were different, and that's why we eventually agreed to go our separate ways. It was tough splitting for a second time, but we both know it was for the best. Inside, I had no doubt that in the future we would be close as friends or more. Um, trying to read what the unlike. word Unlike. Unlike what's been in the press, Nicole-I had a great relationship for most of our lives together. Like all long-term relationships, we had a few downs and ups. I took the heat New Year's 1984 because that what I was supposed to do. I did not plea no contest for any other reason but to protect our privacy and was advised it would end the press. And there's another word crossed out. Hype. Press, press hype. hype. And then there's another scribble. I don't want to blame or balance. I, I can't read what it all is here. Um, yeah, you can't read. I can't read the rest of that either. He, he finishes it off at the end there. But as, if you want to go through what I just read... Yeah. And tell me what you think is you interesting. Know, the, first, the first sentence says it all. First, everyone understand, crosses out, I had, and then writes, nothing to do with Nicole's murder. So he could not, he wrote the word, I had nothing to do with it, and he went back and crossed it out. He couldn't really get a better example of statement analysis than that. He could not put the pronoun in there to accept the responsibility of that statement. He wanted to say it, but even in writing it out, he went back and crossed that, that word out. Now. You know, whether that's a conscious thing, subconscious thing, it, to me, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to, you know, you're going to analyze what they tell you or what they, they put down. And one of the reasons that, you know, I wrote statements out and had people tell me the statements is because it slowed it down and I could analyze every word. If you give them a piece of paper and ask them to write it out, you get these types of things, which are cross outs and errors. And you want to see what did they cross out? What did they change it to? You know, maybe become something very important. How come they cross that out? And why did they change it to that? And you can see the rest of his uh, note here. He's really trying to explain that, you know, I loved her. We were getting along great. Why would I kill her? And he's trying to show that they had a closer relationship. But he said, if her and I, if, if we had a problem, right? So we know over time there, the police were called there and she com complained many times about an assault and things. He did not say if we had problems, he said, if we had a problem, that's one thing. And of course they're coming to arrest him for murder. So I would almost think he's thinking of this case. Like if I had a problem that I had to murder her, you know, interested in it, he just put a problem. Uh, the last sentence in that paragraph, because he's trying to build this relationship that he had with her over time and ups and downs, and he did the best thing and they knew it was for the best. This statement inside, I had no doubt that in the future we would be close as friends or more. 
so they weren't friends when this happened. After it was all over and after he was found not guilty in court, he made a statement like, I really feel like she wasn't the woman I married, right? It's very telling that he felt that she had turned into someone else, that, that he needed to uh, take action, right? Yeah, so for that, I mean, it's, there's other things that you can analyze, but those are the two big takeaways. That first line blows you yeah, away. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole that's the whole note where he couldn't even say I had nothing to, and in his letter, he never once tries to deny killing Ron Goldman. He doesn't even mention Ron Goldman. He's being arrested for two murders. So if he doesn't deny, why doesn't he deny it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, so what I'm going to read to you now is, uh, from a, a newspaper uh, with the headline, Chilling Interview with Detectives Reveals the Stormy Underside of Simpson's Marriage. Okay, let me just... In, go. Yeah, sure. Uh, I used to go into high schools, a class, and give a, you know, an hour presentation on the polygraph to different classes. And when I, I got this article from a teacher that got it out of the newspaper, without even going through the whole uh, interview that he had, which was only 32 minutes by two experienced homicide detectives. You know, that's my background for him, 32 minutes. I haven't even started talking about the case yet. They did the taped interview anyway in 32 minutes. But the press, instead of realizing they have OJ's exact answers to the questions he's being asked, and instead of realizing that could be important, they just want to see the dirt on the marriage. What's the stormy underside? So I think maybe what we'll do is when you read this, Howie, if you start on the bottom right where the last paragraph under that square there. Mm -hmm. With PV? Yeah, PV uh, is Van Adder. And go from there? And then, you know, maybe as we go through it, I'll just stop you and we'll analyze it as you go through. Okay. So in this, in this particular interview, this is the interrogation of O.J. Simpson, which was conducted by Philip Van Adder and Thomas Lang, both of the Los Angeles Police Department at the time. So... In the course of the investigation, Van Adder asked, how did you get the injury on your hand? OJ's response, I don't know. The first time when I was in Chicago and all, but at the house, I was just running around. Okay. So obviously we're not getting the whole statement. We're just doing what was in the paper, but this is a lot of the most important parts. Now, did you, he was bleeding, right? Obviously, uh, after he left the scene, they had a bloody thumbprint on the back gate. There was a trail of blood uh, from his car into his house, to his bedroom. There was a mixture of her blood and his on a sock in his bedroom, um, right? When yeah. he went to the airport that night and flew to Chicago, the maid later said that he had blood all over the sink. The towels were bloody. Uh, so did you ever cut yourself to the point where you were dripping blood in your house? Now you're aware of it, right? And you go to the sink and you're trying to stop the bleeding and you're aware of where the blood is dripping. Is it going to stain the rug? And when you cut yourself to that extent that he was bleeding that much, you're pretty aware of how you cut it. And normally you'd say to somebody, man, look what I did, right? So he doesn't get a bandage, a bandage on it yet. But they say to him, the first answer he gives, how did you get the injury in your hand? He says, I don't know. I mentioned on the last podcast, when I'm talking to someone, I want to see where they are on a scale from zero to a hundred towards confessing. Zero, they don't want to confess. A hundred, they're totally committed to it. We have to get them up around 
and then we get a full confession. But I also mentioned that one of the things people do when they're undecided and they're really close to confessing, uh, silence is one. They ask questions, what would happen to me? Uh, what would happen to a person that did something like this? They need more information to make the decision. The third thing that people do when they're thinking about confessing is to answer questions with, I don't know, because in their mind, they're not lying. So they're not ready to tell you the truth, but they don't want to lie to you. So with the first answer right there, if I was interviewing him, I'm said, he's, he's pretty close. He doesn't want to lie to me. And I would appreciate that. And then he follows it up with what Howie read uh, the first time when I was in Chicago and all, but at the house I was just running around, makes no sense. And that he's doing the best he can, right? Because he's not answering honestly, it's messed up, and he's just trying to say something to try to cover up. So that's a pretty telling answer uh, to that question. Van Adder then asked him, how did you do it in Chicago? OJ answers, I broke a glass. And then there's a bit of the paper cut off. Um, but I think it said one of you guys had called me that morning and I just kind of went bonkers for a little bit. That's his statement, right? So look at the first answer. How did you do it in Chicago? Which he's already bleeding at his house, so we know it isn't true, but they went with his story. Okay, how'd you do it in Chicago? He wrote, I broke a glass. Now, doesn't that sound like a truthful statement with the pronoun? It's pretty direct. I broke a glass, right? He went in the bathroom and he broke a glass in the sink. And you are to infer that he cut his finger on a piece of that broken glass. But guess what he never says? I cut my finger on a piece of that broken glass. He says, I broke a glass. He told the truth he could tell, which is what people do. They tell, it's easier to tell the truth. So they pick things they can tell the truth on, not consciously. This is not a scheme that he's thinking, how can I get away with this? And what are they, people have no idea that you're paying attention to their words. You know, on TV, you'll see over and over that show, Lie to Me, all about gestures and body language, how the police know somebody's lying. They're aware of that. There's never been a show on TV about statement analysis. And when these people come in, I don't care how hardened they are, they've been in prison for 30 years, they've done this, they've killed four people, they have no idea you're listening to their words. So he's not trying to mess up his words or say anything in a certain way. This is what you're going to get. You're going to listen to people. So he told the truth he could tell. I believe he broke a glass, but he never says, I cut my finger on a piece of that broken glass. So when someone doesn't tell us something, we cannot say it for him. We know what he means to say, but he didn't say it. So we can't say it. Right. And I'll just add, he said, one of you guys had just called me and I kind of went bonkers for a little bit. So put yourself in his place. You fly to a Chicago and the place where your kids are sleeping, your ex-wife is brutally murdered. And the police call and say, your ex-wife and another man have been brutally murdered at your kid's house. Would you just go bonkers for a little bit and then you're fine? <laughs> he knew the call was coming. He knew what he was going to do. He knew the call was coming. So he just, he went, okay, okay. He, now he's ready. And that's what he said. I just went bonkers for a little bit. And then he composed himself. So I think he told the truth there. Yeah. Then Lang asked him, is that how you cut it? And OJ answered, mm, it was cut before, but I think I just opened it again. I'm not sure. All right. So right there, that, mm, he's thinking, right? Why would you have to think about how you cut your finger? And he just said he cut it on a piece of, or he's trying to say he cut it on a piece of glass, right? All they're asking is a simple question, is that how you cut it? And he's got to think. So 
these things are in the past. They should be in the past tense. You shouldn't have to think about, especially here, about cutting your finger like that. So just the thinking part of that answer that luckily they wrote down that he was um, thinking and he still can't answer the question. You know, I'm not really sure. So he's still in that stage of really not locking himself in, which I put him up around 50% of thinking I might confess to this. Yeah. Lang then asked him, do you recall bleeding at all in your truck in the Bronco? OJ answers, I recall bleeding at my house. And then I went to the Bronco. The last thing I did before I left when I was rushing was went and got my phone out of the Bronco. So he hasn't been told yet whether they found any blood in, in there. And he doesn't know if there's any evidence or not, right? But he already said before, the first time he cut it, he was in Chicago and all. Now he says, well, I was bleeding, yeah, right, at my house. So now you have him in a contradiction there. And the rest of it is just to cover uh, that he doesn't know if he, if he left any blood in there, so he doesn't want to commit himself. Lang asks, so do you recall bleeding at all? OJ answers, yeah, I mean, I know I was bleeding, but it was no big deal. I bleed all the time. I play golf and stuff. So there's always some something nicks and stuff here and there. Right. So now he knows that there's, there's blood at his house. And uh, his first defense was that he was in the front yard chipping golf balls. So that's where that came out. He never really referred to that again. It's pretty silly that he uh, had to cut that severe by chipping golf balls. But the reason that came out was his first statement was, I was in my front yard that night chipping golf balls. <laughs> Lang asked, so did you do anything? When did you put the Band-Aid on it? And Van Etter says, is Nicole seeing no. any... Oh, I'm sorry, uh, that's ahead. cut off too. He said, actually, I asked the girl this morning for it. That is an unbelievably great uh, question and answer because he cuts his finger, right? Bleeding all over in his car, at his house, in his bedroom, waiting for the limo. He's bleeding, obviously, in a limo. Goes to Chicago, bleeds all night in the room, blood all over the sink. Gets called back. Comes home, right? Then he's brought in the police station for questioning. And they said, when did you put the Band-Aid on it? He said, actually, I asked the girl this morning. So if you cut your finger in your house, you're bandaging, bandaging it immediately. The only person that's going to wait that long of a time to bandage a severe cut like that is someone that's trying to hide it. Once everybody sees it, it's out in the open, let me get it fixed. But until then, I don't really want anybody to know that I cut my finger. So that is a hugely important question. Then Van Adder asks, uh, Van Adder asks is Nicole seeing anybody else that you, and OJ cuts him off, I have no idea. I really have absolutely no idea. I don't ask her. I don't know. Her and her girlfriends, they go out, you know, they've got some things going on right now with her girlfriends. So I'm assuming something's happening because of the girlfriend, the girlfriend is having a big problem with her husband because she's always saying she's with Nicole until three or four in the morning. She's not, you know. Nicole tells me she leaves her at 1.30 or 2, and the girl doesn't get home until 5. She only lives a few blocks away. So what do we have here? We have the most OJ talks in these examples. By far, he triples or quadruples the amount of time he spent on any other answer. And all he wants to do is talk about what she's been doing. And these are all possible theme materials 
as to why this built up, you know, and why it happened. He's given you all the reasons. And I mentioned before, he made the statement, I really felt she wasn't the woman that I married. She was someone else at the time this happened, at the time he killed her. Then they ask, uh, so Van Adder says, something's going on, huh? And Lang says, do you know where they went, the family, for dinner last night? OJ answers, no. Well, no, I didn't ask. So if the answer to a question is yes or no, that's all they say. If a person answered yes or no and then adds something else, the answer wasn't yes or no. So they're saying, do you know where she went for dinner? He answered no, but then he added, well, no, I didn't ask. So what that tells you is maybe he did know, but believing him, he didn't have to ask anybody. He had Cato living in a little uh, house behind Nicole's. And he was reporting to OJ in exchange for being able to live there on what her activities were. So this may be one of the statements that he feels that he can tell the truth, though. You know, I didn't ask anyone where she was going, which may be true. But the answer of not knowing where she was, I don't think is accurate. Then he asks about a restaurant. He says, I thought maybe there was a certain place you'd go to. They name a few restaurants. Um, Van Adder says... You haven't had any problems with her lately, have you, OJ? OJ says, I always have problems with her, you know? Our relationship has been a problem relationship. And right there is a great statement that you're going to refer him back to during your interrogation. And he's already owning up to the fact that, you know, it's been a problem the whole time. And they, they've all, he's always had a problem with her. So that's going to be good uh, material for your themes. Van Adder asks him, did Nicole have any words with you last night? OJ says, pardon me? Did Nicole have words with you last night? OJ, not at all. Did you talk to her last night? OJ said, to ask to speak to my daughter, to congratulate my daughter and everything. Van Adder says, but you didn't have a conversation with her? No, no. I think this is a huge, huge part of his statement here. Let's, let's look at the crime for a minute. You have OJ has to wait for a limo shortly, and he's going to be flying to Chicago for a job. So he makes a call to the restaurant where his wife is. He wants to talk to his daughter to congratulate her on her recital that night. Uh, You wonder what made OJ so angry because you can tell by the the scene, the anger uh, that was involved in the violence, right? What made OJ so angry that he decided the heck with me waiting for the limo. I'm putting on my blue sweatsuit my watch cap. Now he had just finished filming that movie about the Navy SEALs. So what did they wear? Basically the same thing. What techniques did they teach with the knife coming up behind people, slicing their throats, right? So he decides to put on this blue-black sweat suit with the knit hat, the fibers of which were later found in his washing machine that he had come home uh, and thrown them into. And then he decides to take a weapon with him and you know, people thought it was this long-bladed uh, six-inch stiletto or something. Uh, if you look at a tape that um, Mark Furman made, which is another interesting sidelight to this case, Mark Furman is on the scene. He's a uh, robbery, right? And he's doing the scene, and he's got notes, and he's got a note that there's a bloody fingerprint on the back gate that if you just took a picture of it, you could uh, identify. So when Lang and Venator, they're the homicide detectives. And when they show up, and I'm just assuming this because I haven't read anything in particular, but 
the conversation seems to be, what are you doing here? You're robbery. We'll take over. And whatever, he hands them the notebook without telling them what's in it. They never read the notebook, they admit later. So there's great evidence that was missed is that ego. What's the reason they wouldn't read his notes when he got there first? They had the glove. They had the bloody uh, fingerprint in the back gate, right? So they thought that this was going to be a long-bladed knife. Mark Furman finds pictures of OJ's house that on the bathtub was a box with a knife missing, Swiss Army pen knife with a three-and-a-half-inch blade. And uh, OJ was on the board of directors of Swiss Army. And they gave him a bag of knives and he said to his driver one day, man, you could kill somebody with one of these, right? Interesting. So that knife is found to be missing from the box later when the police went back in to search with a search warrant, the whole box was missing. But there is a picture that they took originally of the, uh, of his bathroom with this box with the empty knife. So, um, they have a scene in a video with Mark Furman that he took the knife to, Warner Spitz, who did the textbook on wounds, and he said, could this blade have caused every injury on both people? And he said, it absolutely could. And the wound track might look deeper depending on whether the person had taken a breath or not, whether their lungs were expanded. But this knife, three and a half inch blade Swiss Army pen knife, could have caused all of these wounds on both people. So then he's, then Dr. Spitz says, but this, this didn't do it. This doesn't match the crime scene. And he says that Ron Goldman was punched and the knife scraped his face and it had a serrated blade. And this blade doesn't have a serrated blade. And you hear the cameraman say, pull out the other blade. And when he put the first one away and pulled the other one out, it's a three and a half inch serrated blade. And on camera, he turns it and matches it up to the wound on Ron Goldman's face. And he said, this is a match. So it might be a three and a half inch uh, pen knife that he took over there. Now, when you're driving over in rage, thinking you're going to murder someone, don't you think you would calm down? I got to get to the airport. I can't really be doing this as the mother of my children. He's so enraged that he, not only doesn't he lose the steam of the anger that when he gets there, a man shows up that's obviously in good shape, a physical specimen that he could have said, you know what? She lucked out tonight and went home. He says, you know what? I'm killing two people tonight. And he ends up, you know, uh, murdering Ron Goldman and then Nicole. So you wonder if we knew what it was that started this that night and made him that angry. Well, if you look at this phone call, it's very interesting because did Nicole have words with you last night, Van Adder asks, and OJ says, pardon me? Now, it's a pretty simple question. So when someone says they don't understand your question, did they not understand it or are they getting themselves time to think? So what the good thing to do is ask the question exactly the same. If he didn't understand it, he still won't. If he was getting time to think, now he might answer. So luckily for us, he repeated the question exactly the same. Did Nicole have words with you last night? And he says, not at all. That's his statement. Not at all. Not one word spoken with Nicole. Not at all. Right? The next question is, well, did you talk to her last night? And he says to ask to speak to my daughter, to congratulate my daughter and everything. So he's contradicting himself, a hugely sensitive area right here. 
contradicts himself. First, he said he had no words with her. Now he's like, well, yeah, I mean, she answered the phone. I talked to my daughter. So here's a great point. If you're going to be in interrogation and you're going to point out his inconsistencies. So what we see in this, the questioning is Vanatter, Detective Vanatter noticed that he contradicted himself, but instead of taking it and using it or believing in it, he excused it. And he said, uh, but you didn't have a whole conversation with her. And OJ said, no. So he just excused the contradiction. And I think, you know, once, once you start looking at the words and, and believing that you can be that picky that he said, not at all. I mean, you may be sitting there thinking, come on now, you're going a little bit far with this. I mean, so what he said, not at all. He wasn't thinking of the initial, he was asked the question and he answered it. And I'm analyzing the way he answered it. And the more you do that, the more, the better you're going to get. And you're going to find out most of the time. Yeah. Could on any instance, might your interpretation, even though you're following the rules, be, uh, could you be wrong? Yes, obviously you could. Um, but if you follow along and see where these things can take you, how much are you going to get when you interview someone on a case? How many things are they going to reveal in their words that you can use or pick on to say, well, I think this looks truthful. or I think this looks deceptive. You're not going to get a hundred examples. So when you get something, at least explore it. That's a sensitive area that I would have spent more time going back and talking about that phone call. And that's all statement analysis is. It's instead of being reactive, it's a proactive technique because this is the interview portion. And you're going to pick up things that when you start the interrogation process or further interviewing, you have places to go back and you're being proactive and picking on sensitive spots. And they begin to feel on their subconscious mind, man, this guy's picking on me all the places I messed up or don't feel confident about. And they already start to get the idea that you know the answer. It just, the whole thing works within itself to help you through the interview. So Van Adder then, uh, he asks OJ, he says, OJ, we've got sort of a problem. OJ says, mm-hmm. Van Adder says, we've got some blood on and in your car. We've got, and I think what they say, it's cut off something about blood and they want to perform a test. And Lang says, he says, take my blood test. Yeah. Take your blood test. And Lang says, well, we'd like to do that. We've got, of course, the cut on your finger that you aren't real clear on. Do you recall having that cut on your finger the last time you were at Nicole's house? And OJ says, a week ago? Lang says, yeah, no, it was last night. Lang says, okay, so last night you cut it? And Van Adder says, somewhere after the recital? OJ's answer, somewhere when I was rushing to get out of my house. Van Adder responds again, okay, after the recital. OJ says, yeah. Van Adder says, all right, hold there. Go ahead. That's a good spot. So I think right here we have uh, what I would, you know, refer to as something like a smoking gun. I mean, I think there's two areas in here. They already excused this conversation, which I think is important for the whole motive. Uh, and there's two spots where I think they gave away to OJ that they really didn't know the answer. He didn't need to confess. I mean, I think he was on, uh, on the fence the whole time of thinking, you know, I might admit to this. They had an awful lot of evidence coming into it. And maybe their interview was short because they thought they had enough with the blood trail and the evidence with his socks with blood on him in his room and things like that, right? That could be. Um, but if we look at this series here, I take it that 
the detectives and, and uh, Van Adder are maybe trying to get a confession here, right? So they say, OJ, we got some sort of a problem. And he goes, mm-hmm. He agrees. Yes. So that's the first good thing, because if you have a truthful person and you say, hey, you know, we got a problem. They say, what's the problem? I thought you were believing me. What do you mean? Right. He immediately agrees with him. Yeah, you got a problem. OK, so that's good. I still think that means he's up around the 50 50 mark of, of admitting to this. So they said, we got some blood on you and your car and we got this. Right. So they're building kind of the stream of evidence against him. He says, we'll take my blood test. And they said, well, we'd like to do that. But we got, of course, the cut in your finger uh, that you aren't real clear on. And then he says, do you recall having that uh, cut on your finger the last time you were at Nicole's house? He's already established in his interview that he was there a week ago, right? So right here, when he says after they said, did you have it the last time you were there? And he goes, a week ago? He's challenging them. He's testing them. Do they know the answer? Because the answer is he was there last night to kill her right? So he throws out in the conversation, you mean a week ago? That's the point they lose it because they should have said, OJ, everybody in this room right now knows where you were last night. You weren't last at her house a week ago. But when he throws out a week ago and they say, yeah, he knows they don't know the answer. And why would somebody, if you go up to anyone that committed a crime in your interview and you say, I have no idea whatsoever if you did this, did you do it? How many people are going to say, yep, you got me. (laughs) Nobody's going to do it. He just threw out to them, you mean a week ago I was there last? And they say, yeah. So, man, my heart sunk when I saw that. I'm like, and it's really not a criticism of them. If you never uh, heard about statement analysis, you weren't aware of it, and you didn't know that you could go by it, you know, I can't really blame them for what they did. I mean, they had a chance. They, you know, they spent time with them. They asked them some good questions. We got some good information. But, boy, I wish they would have just caught that and, and hammered them there and said, no, you were there last night, right? So we kind of missed that. Um, Baynatter uh, eventually then asked him, what do you think happened? Do you have any idea? OJ's answer, I have no idea, man. You guys haven't told me anything. I have no idea. When you said to my daughter, who said something to me today, that somebody else might have been involved, I have absolutely no idea what happened. I don't know how, why, or what. You guys haven't told me anything. Every time I ask you guys, you say you're going to tell me in a bit. Okay, stop there. This right here is a good example. Like People were calling me after they read this, and they're saying, look at what he's saying. I don't know how, why, or what. Isn't that a truthful statement? I say, yeah, that, that sounds pretty truthful. Well, then you're saying OJ is the guy that did it. How, how, can, how can he be truthful when he says he doesn't know how? I said, read what he wrote. Read what he said. And you go back to the sentence. I have no ideas. You guys haven't told me anything. Right? When you said to my daughter, who said something to me today, that somebody else might have been involved, I have no idea. I don't know how, why, or what. That's totally true. If some, he put the word else in there so he could tell a truthful denial. If somebody else did it, I don't have a clue. I mean, and that's what people do. They tell a truth they can tell. And he told that truth that he could tell. If somebody else did it, he's telling the truth. He doesn't know how, why, or what, right? Van Adder then says, well, we don't know a lot of the answers to these questions yet ourselves, OJ, okay? 
And I think we can end there because that's where they lost the rest of it because they're saying to them, we can't answer these questions. We don't know what happened. And to get somebody to own up to something, you know, you're going to have to let them know that you know the answer. You can't just say, hey, we don't know anything. That's it. Thanks a lot. You know, and uh, so the, the couple of points there that they missed where they could have been a little bit more proactive, I think they kind of lost the confession. But I think he definitely um, would have confessed to it. Yeah. What do you think of that last line, the whole thing when Lang says, so it was about five days ago you last saw Nicole? Was it at the house? He says, okay. The last time I saw Nicole, physically saw Nicole, I saw her obviously last night. Yeah. I mean, that, you're right. We should have went over that, right? I mean. He's really having a hard time with it, repeating the question, giving himself time to think. Okay, the last time I saw Nicole, physically saw Nicole. And then he didn't want to say it, but he said, I saw her obviously because they already knew that. I saw her obviously last night. And that contradicts what he said before when he said a week ago. Yeah. And they just, they just kind of don't um, point out the inconsistencies. I think he was a um, he was a nightmare for defense attorneys in a lot of places because even later on with the civil suits and then the, the subsequent criminal trial, he was given a lot of statements. Mm-hmm. He was showing up doing press, and uh, so on January of 1998, he was interviewed by Chris Myers on ESPN. This was after he was found not guilty. Right, it's the first time he's had a chance to address the public. Yeah, and Chris Myers asked the question, "Did you do it?" His answer. I'm certainly not re-examining my position. <laughs> he couldn't even deny the case. He couldn't even deny doing it. Man. That's a horrible denial. I'm not re-examining my position. I mean, I, it's, I mean you, you don't even need to be an expert to look at that and go, what the hell kind right. of answer is that? Man. And he's had all this time with all his defense attorneys, all the court, everything else, all the interviews. Yeah. And he still cannot deny doing it. And then the next question was, are you capable of killing someone? His answer, I would say no. He'd say no. Right? He didn't say no. He said, I'd say no. So. Right. Follow-up question. Did you hit her? No, but I was very physical with her. So there's another example of where yes or no isn't yes or no. He added something to it. So as the investigator, you would just go back and get a definition of very physical, and you'd learn a lot more information about what was going on between the two of them. Um, there's... There was other uh, parts of his interviews and other interviews that he did um, in some of his in some of his speeches. One of his quotes was, "I want to state unequivocally that I did not commit these horrible crimes. I loved Nicole. I could never do such a thing." I would say that it's a tr- the first part's a truthful statement. He would like to state, but he's not stating it, and he can't state it. He's saying, I would like to state that I, that, what was it? I would like to state unequivocally I did not commit these horrible crimes. He's not saying I did not commit these crimes. He's saying, I'd like to state that I didn't. Yeah, he would. Hmm. (laughs) Unbelievable. He did a bunch of, a series of interviews, wrote a book, which he lost the rights to in a civil case. But as you can see, and this is one of the reasons I asked Jerry to come on again and do this with statement analysis. I mean, this is one of the most famous cases of our time, of our generation. And you can see how the statement analysis, if, if, if they had listened and, and, and pulled it apart the right way at the time, they could have very easily put him in a corner. And uh, I think like Jerry's saying, he probably would have confessed with a little bit more of the right type of pressure and the right type of interrogation as, as maybe some of the follow-ups of some of his interview questions. Yeah. 
Now he wrote he wrote a book or uh, did you go through that the book he if I did it what was the name of that oh book? the book was I want uh, to tell I you. want to tell you yeah the book contains letters people had written to Simpson while he was in jail he responds to these letters and shares his thoughts about his predicament and he begins the chapter one with the following quote in this book I am speaking publicly for the first time since my arrest for two reasons first and foremost I want to respond to the more than 300,000 people who wrote to me. The second reason is financial. Hmm. Um, and he, he went through, you know, that he was, you know, broke. But one of the things he says, I am grateful that even those who believe in my guilt, uh, he talks about possibly his guilt. And in another sentence, he says, I am 100% not guilty. Follow-up thing, he says, I had 1,000% faith and trust in Nicole's decisions about the kids. Right. So we have, um, what was the, the 100%, 100%. Yeah. He's a hundred percent on one, but he's a thousand percent on the other. So he's 10 times more confident of the second statement than he is about, um, Nicole. And he also says not guilty, which is a truthful statement. He was yeah. found not guilty in court. And the first one was, oh, my guilt. He says, um, I'm glad that the people that had belief in my guilt still wanted me to have the chance to have a trial. Well, he could have said it a different way, but he used his possessive pronoun of my owning, claiming ownership of the guilt of the crime. So he could have said that anybody that thought that I might've done it, he could have phrased it something like that, but he put anybody that believed in my guilt. So he personalized it. He possessed it with that word my, so that's interesting. Another interesting thing, he says, I am 100% not guilty. I said it again in Judge Ito's chambers, and I'll say it again here. Again, I am 100% not guilty. I just want to keep saying that I'm yeah, not guilty. Yeah, he's repeating it. Right. Yeah. Not, not a good denial. No, he's, it, and it's one of the more interesting cases, I think, when it comes to statement analysis. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. Now, he had a problem with the book because he wasn't allowed to make money, and he was sued by Ron Goldman's family, and they, they retained the ownership rights to it. So they got the rights, you know, and uh, you can get the book, and it's supposed to be what happened. So if you read the book, I don't know if you've read it, I don't want to give away the ending, but don't uh, don't think that you're going to get the answer because it's something, I read the whole book about his relationships, relationships. I couldn't just jump to the last chapter to see what he said that night, right? But I went through everything. Then even when you get to the night where it happens, um, this is a spoiler any of you want to wait but uh <laughs> basically says so i went over there and uh was confronting her and then ron goldman assumed a, a karate stance and i said to him what do you think you're going to try something or something like that and next sentence is then i ended up covered in blood and i don't know what happened I did mean, he really say i never read the book yeah he actually said that yeah oh my gosh then i ended up all covered in blood wow <laughs> so there's That's no accounting of what happened. He remembers every other thing. But the And admits actual, to going there. Yeah. Wow. And Ron Goldman assumed the karate stance. He said, what, are you going to try something? <laughs> wow. It's amazing. It, the, the statement, you breaking down the statement itself is amazing. And, and the, the point of doing this is really to show people what can be done. Like you look at some of these things people say that you may hear every day on the news or people talk about all the time or you read it in a newspaper and you breeze through it, right? We are a nation right now consumed. We are consumed with opinion-based media. 
we've become sheep. We follow along with the opinions of, of, of our favorite channel. We won't watch the ones that might be right or left or oppose what we want. We watch the ones that are going to say the things we want to hear. So we follow along like crazy. And it just goes to show you how people will miss this kind of stuff because they never really break any of it down and then pay attention. Let me give uh, maybe one other example. Like sure. we're going through when they write out what they did that day. We're going through OJ's whole question and answer. Sometimes you'll be sitting with someone and you don't, you're not really getting a feeling one way or the other. And it might only take one statement, right? So we have a, a double homicide where a, a couple, of, a brother and a sister live together. They live on a major highway. She would sit in the front window and wave to all the traffic going by. And uh, her brother was 65, would stay there and, and help take care of her. And a brutal murder occurred where someone came in the house with a 22 rifle. They shot the woman in the head the bullet bounced off. So there she is still alive. The person's already committed themselves to killing her. They, they shoot again and they shoot her in the head and she dies. Apparently during this, the, her brother, the 65-year-old man, came home and had a violent altercation with the shooter that it went on for at least two rooms. Did you work on this one, Howard? I do remember this case. Okay. Yeah. So if the case facts, I don't know if, if I'm saying them correctly or... No, you're on it. Because I only get the review. I've never... I've been to, in 40 years, maybe three crime scenes. I never got to go to the scene, as just David yeah. tell me. This was a violent scene. Yeah. And in the end, the shooter apparently found a pair of scissors and stabbed the man in the neck and killed him, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this case had no leads whatsoever. And uh, nobody ever stopped there. Nobody knew the people. Uh, nobody saw anything. I mean, there. this case was zero leads. So time went by. And um, we got a call to polygraph the niece that once a year she would drive through the area on her way to Atlantic City. And sometimes on her way back, she'd stop to visit her, her aunt and uncle. So they said, could you just, you know, clear her? of any suspicion because we can't even find anybody else that was ever even in the house. So she came in and I was with my, uh, supervisor and, uh, he said, we, you know, you can do the interview with her. So as I was going over to background form and talking to her, she said she might be pregnant. Now polygraph, our standards were if somebody was pregnant, we didn't run a test, not because you couldn't uh, get good results. It's because of the liability if she ever lost the baby, she could say the stress of the polygraph. Um, so, you know, after a brief interview with her, I took her back upstairs and then her boyfriend had come in with her. And I said, up there, were you with her the day she visited her aunt and uncle? He goes, yeah. I said, would you mind coming down? Because we can't test her. And he goes, yeah. So he came down. Now, because I had talked to her, now my supervisor is going to talk to him and do that test, you know? So I'm sitting in the back of the room, just listening. And my Lieutenant is going on with the interview and he gets up and he leaves the room. And I really didn't know where he was going, you know, what, how soon he'd be back. But I just waited and the, the guy has his back to me and he's still sitting facing the desk. And Time went by, I mean, you know, a few minutes, but it was getting a little uncomfortable about, you know, what's going on. And he's got his back. Now he's trying to turn around and he's trying to make eye contact with me. Like, you know, what are we doing? There's that silence, right? Yeah. And uh, so I just out of really socialness, right, to 
kind of close the gap and just wait, you know, for my lieutenant to come back. I uh, pulled the chair up next to him and I said one thing. Could anybody uh, tell us that you were at the house? Oh, he said he wasn't there. Yeah, I got it mixed up. He said he wasn't with her when she went there. I said, could anybody tell us that you were at the house that day? And he said, I hope not. I sincerely hope not. And right there, I knew he's the guy. Because he would have said, no, I wasn't there. Right? He said, I hope not. So all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, he hopes not. So he doesn't know if anybody saw him. So I just then said to him, I said, now, it's been a while since this happened. I said, do you know why you're here today? He goes, well, because of, uh, you know, this. I said, uh, no, actually, these were elder, older people that, you know, were in the house. I said, you know who lives around them? All older people. I said, you know what old people do every day when they're in their house? They have nothing else to do. They look out the window and they spy on their neighbors. And what you did that day scared the living daylights out of all these people that until yesterday, they were too scared to come in here and tell what they saw. Yesterday, they banded together for comfort and strength and got the nerve up to come and tell their stories of what they saw, right? So because he had said, I hope not, he wasn't sure. And if he was truthful and he didn't do anything, he could have given me a good denial right there and I would have stopped. If he said, no, I wasn't there, that would have been it. But he didn't give me a good denial. He gave me one to keep going. So he looked at me and he immediately confessed. The niece went there. They thought they had money. He had this old 22. Uh, the gun accidentally went off and shot her the first time. <laughs> and then he, was, he had to do it the second time. And then the brother came home. He said, man, that guy almost got me. And he said, I was lucky to win that fight. So he confessed to the whole thing. And it really boiled down to uh, one answer. Wow. That's, the, that's what's nice about the statement analysis. It works. What I'd like to do, um, probably one more thing in this episode, if, if you don't mind, is go back to the 1960s and talk a little bit about Ted Kennedy. Obviously, he was involved in an incident where Mary Jo Kopechny lost her life in a car going off a bridge. Um, and there has always been speculation and talk about Ted Kennedy's role in this and how it all went down. So what I have here is a, is a statement that was prepared by Ted Kennedy. Uh, I'd like to read it and get your take. It says, on July 18th, 1969, at approximately 11.15 p.m. in Chappaquiddick, Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, I was driving my car on Main Street on my way to get the ferry back to Edgartown. I was unfamiliar with the road and turned right on to Dyke Road instead of bearing hard left on Main Street. After proceeding for approximately one half mile on Dyke Road, I descended a hill and came upon a narrow bridge. The car went off the side of the bridge. There was one passenger with me, one Miss Mary Kopechny, a former secretary of my brother, Senator Robert Kennedy. The car turned over and sank into the water and landed with the roof resting on the bottom. I attempted to open the door and the window of the car, but I have no recollection of how I got out of the car. I came to the surface and then repeatedly dove down to the car in an attempt to see if the passenger was still in the car. 
I was unsuccessful in the attempt. I was exhausted and in a state of shock. I recall walking back to where my friends were eating. There was a car parked in the front of the cottage and I climbed into the back seat. I then asked for someone to bring me back to Edgartown. Then I remember walking around for a period of time and then going back to my motel room. When I fully realized what had happened this morning, I immediately contacted the police. Okay, so that's the statement that he gave of... Um, that's the famous Ted Kennedy. Yep. And everybody, you know, knows what happened and how could he leave her in the car and save himself and um, that. But when you know um, maybe a little bit more about the case, they even made a movie about it what, within the last couple of years and people were happy that they were showing what really happened, but might not be the whole story of what happened. We can look at his statement and in, in the beginning, he's saying he's on his way, on my way. But then he says he's unfamiliar with the road. You don't say it's your way if you're unfamiliar with it. That's his way, right? So he knows the road. He says my car in the third statement. After that, he brings it up six times. Once the accident occurs, it's the car. So he's taken the ownership of the car away. It's not my car went in the water. It's the car went in the water. And six different times he refers to his car. It's the. Another thing that we see that uh, deceptive people do is they, they, they know that what they're saying didn't happen in this time span and they spread time out and they'll use words like proceeded. I proceeded to go. I went to walk. Um, so, you know, police officers often use the word proceeded and it doesn't mean anything. But if I see the word proceeded in, um, in a statement, I'll look at it for possible time filler. And he did say that after proceeding, for a time, so it's possible. Uh, he talks about the, he's a third of the way through a statement before he mentions anyone else being in the car. So that's pretty, uh, usually you mention what's important up front. So he waited for a third before he even mentions there's anybody in the car. And he identifies her, identifies her as one Miss Mary Kopechny and then says a former secretary of my brother, Senator Robert Kennedy. Man, it's like, I don't even know who this person is. She's something to do with my brother, and somehow she ended up in my car. I mean, that's how impersonal he's making it. But yet he's out in this isolated area with her in the car. But he's really trying to push that relationship aside, right? You can see that. Uh, he says that the car turned over and sank into the water. I attempted to open the door in the window, but I have no recollection how I get out of the car. If you uh, look at research, you see the one thing when people and their car goes into the water, the one thing they do remember is how they got out. And if you look at his statement, if you were investigating his statement to try to verify it, the things that you could verify are the things he doesn't remember. How, what would you see in the car how he got out? Is the window down? Is the door open? Is something broken out? He doesn't answer those questions. And he says when he later, when he went back and he got in someone's car, he doesn't identify anybody. So he leaves out all the things that an investigator could verify to prove his story is true. He has no, uh, no information on the things that could verify his story. It's pretty interesting. He has no recollection I repeatedly do dove down 
to the car in an attempt to see if the passenger was still in the car. It's impersonal, the car. Passenger, that's Mary Jo Kopechny. I wanted to see if the passenger, so you can still see how he's really making that a very impersonal, I hardly even know her, not making it personal at all. And then he said, I was unsuccessful in the attempt, which is interesting because he said he dove down repeatedly several times, but unsuccessful in the attempt would indicate one time, right? He was exhausted in the state of shock. He recalls walking back to where his friends were eating, never identifies the friends, never identifies where that was. There was a car, not saying whose it was, parked in front of the college, and he climbed into the back seat. So he, he's dazed, I guess, and goes back and he just gets in someone's car, even though his friends are right there. Why didn't he reach out to his friends, right? Uh, ask someone to bring him back to Hickertown. So again, we're not getting any information that we can verify. Walked around, went to his motel room, and then the last sentence is interesting. When I fully realized what had happened this morning, I contacted the police. So there's a two-hour show on this that you could look up to verify, you know, what I'm going to say, the, the version of events, and they tell why they came up with the story and things. And basically, he left the party. He was out with Mary Jo, and he's going to go to a lover's lane. A police officer says that I see him. I know the car. I know he's driving down this dirt road. That's a lover's lane. And he basically is saying, uh, I knew who it was, and I was just going to bust his chops a little bit, and I hit my overheads. And he took off because now he's scared. He doesn't want to be pulled over. He's been drinking. He's with a, a woman that's not his wife. He's in a known lover's lane. So he's scared, and he takes off down this road. And obviously at some point he gets out of the car and he tells her, you have to take this car back to the party. And he goes back to his motel room. And later the clerk at the motel says he came in here at this time and he was totally dry. And everybody said he, well, he was wet and he went up to his room and he got dried off and he put other clothes and he came down to establish an alibi. He had no clue of anything that happened. He went back to the motel. He talked to the clerk very calmly that night when he got there, not to establish an alibi because she's unfamiliar with the road and she's in this big car and she see, hits that curve where the bridge is. The car slides, hits the side and flips over and goes in the water. He has no clue. The next morning he comes out on his uh, patio in the room that he's renting and the two people at the next uh, are having breakfast and they're talking to him. He says, oh, I'm going sailing. It's a beautiful day. The other two people say they see uh, Kennedy's aides running up the road soaking wet and they run into the Kennedy's patio and they pull him off into the room and they tell him what they found with the car and Mary Jo. And they said, the next time we see Kennedy, he's coming out of the motel and he's white as a sheet. And you could tell that he had no idea, you know, what had really happened. So when he says at the end, when I fully realized what happened this morning, now you think, well, isn't that a better story than to say that you left her there and saved yourself? They thought at the time he was only charged with leaving the scene of a crime, a traffic accident. If he changed his story, he might be charged with, um, you know, giving a false report or something even more. And he also knew from people talking to his legal team that there was no other evidence indicating anything else and that he could go into court and stick with this story and just be charged with a traffic offense, which they thought 
was a better outcome. And he could even then say that he tried to be a hero and dove down and tried to save her, not realizing that that's probably, you know, made him look um, so much worse. And one of his denial or statements after a judge heard this story, the judge came out and said, you know, that story is really not believable. And uh, Ted Kennedy came out with uh, his rebuttal to that or his, you know, they made it seem like he was really upset with the judge. And he went through a, a large litany of things I was taught to be honest, and I was taught to be faithful, and I was taught to do this, and that to do so made you a good person. And he went through four or five things. He never said he did it. He never said he was that person. He just truthfully said he was taught all those values, but he did not add into a statement, I did that. That's who I am. I'm that person. So that's a pretty interesting little you know, sidelight that he brought it all out, that he was upset with the judge and I was taught to be an honest person. So what's this all about? Well, he never said, I told the truth. He just said, I was taught to be this way. Yeah. It's amazing how many cases there are dating back to then and probably even before that, where you could go through some of this stuff and just pick it apart and see some of the discrepancies and some of the deception. And then when you get something like this, where other people are involved trying to cover things up and, 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 you know, I mean, let's face it, they're like a, they're like a, an American royalty family. There's always going to be people to try to help, but it's really amazing. So what we're going to do is on the next episode, we're going to ask Jerry to come back and we are going to go through on, on the side of statement analysis, two more cases that we think you're going to find very interesting. One is the John Benet Ramsey case where the mother and the father and, um, and the brother have given statements over a period of time. We're going to go through them and let you let you see how those are broken down. And then we're going to go through uh, the case of the death of Megan Conka, which resulted in Megan's Law nationwide, and talk about the the way that statement unfolded and what interesting components there are to that. So I hope you enjoyed this. I think it's a really interesting part of police work that a lot of people really don't get to see the back story of. And uh, we're going to bring you another episode with two other great cases here with Jerry. And then uh, hopefully we're going to convince him to come back in the future. Thanks again, Jerry. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. All right, man. We'll talk soon.